Welcome back to Leader Lab. This month I have as my guest Dr. Robert Sutton. Uh, I'm going to let Dr. Sutton do the intro because uh, it's impossible to keep track of all the things he's been up to recently. Uh, Dr. Sutton, who are you and what do you do? Um, so my name is Bob Sutton, and um, I'm an organizational psychologist who teaches um, management in the School of Engineering, if that's confusing enough. And um, I'd say that the main emphasis I have in both my teaching and uh, my research and also my work with companies is to try to take in especially evidence-based ideas from uh, psychology, sociology, uh, the management area, and to try to apply them in such a way that they're actually useful to managers. So that's I, that's what I try to do anyway. Well, well, fantastic. Yeah, as I said, it's a it's a hard enough intro to get when you're when you're you. I was worried I was going to butcher it, so I figured I'd just let you do it. Sure. Um, now, you, among other things, you are known for putting forth uh, what's been out for a few years now a book called the No Asshole Rule. Uh, tell me, what is the No Asshole Rule? Well, well, the No Asshole Rule is it's a pretty simple idea, and I think the strange thing is, is most people seem to get it without even reading the book, which is disturbing for an author, I think. But um, th the main idea is that uh, is that there's a bunch of reasons, both uh, organizational performance and just plain old humanity and dignity, um, why the best organizations, the best bosses, um, don't allow others actually or themselves to get away with being jerks. And when they do, there tends to be a cost or sanctions for them. And um, and if the, the assholes, people who leave um, others feeling demeaned and de-energized, can't uh, – stop it or control themselves, they're fired. So it is one of those things that I'd actually heard from my dad and other places all my life. Actually, my academic department had it for a while. Um, but I've been sort of amazed since the book um, came out, the respectable organizations that have it. Uh, maybe Exhibit One is a financial services company called Baird, that, which is located in um, Wisconsin. And Paul Purcell, the P CEO, he he brags about the no asshole rule, and now they're, I think, up to number 11 or so on Fortune's best places to work list, and it says they tout their no asshole rule. That's the one-sentence summary. So, uh, so it's been an interesting sort of, sort of adventure with the no asshole rule, but it's, it's basically an argument that, uh, that making money and uh, doing th things as quickly as possible is in everything, that, the, that um, the way you treat people along the way is also very important. Now, it's, it's interesting because I, uh, I think they serve as an incredible example of, of what happens when you actually have a, a no-asshole rule, or, or in the new book, you, you use the term boss holes, which I like better for right. creativity, but, and there's a lot of benefits to, to getting rid of them, but what are some of the costs associated with keeping them? Um, well, I mean, some of the main costs, you can either go at the individual level or the group level. It, 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 at the individual level, it, there's actually got a lot of evidence now that dealing with people who, who are rude and demeaning uh, reduce people's creativity. Um, they lead people to be distracted. Um, and also, they, we're increasingly seeing with anti-bullying laws, they create, um, they create legal problems and you have legal liability. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of problems for the individual, but some of the most interesting research I've seen lately, and this is also in, in, in um, Good Boss, Bad Boss, is this notion on rotten apples. And there's, this, there's evidence that when you've got a group, uh, just a small group that just has one of these um, creeps, 
that uh, your productivity, the productivity of the group goes way down in large part because they're so distracting that you're always um, trying to deal with them. And then the other problem is, and, and this is one of the points that I always emphasize in the book, is that uh, since assholes are us, that it's a contagious disease, so you catch it from them too. It's like cooties or something, you know. And, uh, and so, uh, so, so that those are uh, some of the problems and some of the costs. And now, uh, Good Boss, Bad Boss is the new one. It is uh, out in September. Uh, Pre-order it now. Make a note in your calendar or on the 7th, but it's out soon. Now, it's a follow-up to the No Asshole Rule. What inspired you to write Good Boss, Bad Boss? Yeah, yeah. so I would say it was inspired by the uh, No Asshole Rule, but it's not really a sequel, so I think that's right. So so what I started noticing, and one of the characteristics, for better or for worse, of writing this book is that that I've been uh, deluged with emails, stories, um, all sorts of uh, people who are curious and tell me their, their asshole stories, if you will. And one thing I started noting, noticing, and I've got, for example, 3,000 emails or so, is about 80% of them um, um, treated the boss as a central character. So either they wanted to have a boss who um, was not a jerk um, or they wanted to be a boss who wasn't a jerk. Those were the two themes. But the other thing that started coming through as I talked to people is, if you will, not being a jerk wasn't enough for a boss. What they also wanted was to either have a boss who was competent or a boss who, um, or to be a boss who was competent. And in fact, maybe some of us have had this experience. If you, if you have a really nice, civilized boss who is politically weak and inept, it's actually terrible because, like, you feel awful because, you know, you don't want to say anything bad about them or leave them. But, in fact, you probably have to because they're hurting you and themselves in all sorts of ways. So uh, so I got interested in this, this notion of, in general, um, and maybe more from the boss's perspective, what does it take to be a good boss versus a bad boss and a, making an evidence-based argument um, about bosses. And by bosses, I particularly mean the relationship between um, an immediate support superior and then the people who report to him or her. And so this can be anybody, just some of the range in the book from uh, CEOs. I've actually done um, already a lot, of, um, a lot of workshops with CEOs on this stuff. To um, one, one guy I've been talking about and is in the book is um, a, a, friend of, a friend of mine named Nick Dacuzzo, Gattuso, I'm sorry, I should be able to pronounce his name, who um, leads a SWAT team. But to me, they're all bosses because they have immediate managerial responsibility. And uh, this is the reading the book. It's actually really intense. It uses a lot of data and a lot of, like you said, over you know three thousand emails that you've got that are stories of different uh, boss holes or great bosses. Mm-hmm. What separates a good boss from from a bad boss, or as I like to say, boss hole? So um, there's I, there's lots of things, and in, in the book, um, as you say, I cover all sorts of things, everything from the ability to turn knowledge into action, to protect people, to convince people you're in charge. But the theme that runs throughout the book, and um, the more work I do with bosses and uh, companies, the more I believe um, it's important, is, is this notion that the best bosses are in tune with or are self-aware enough to realize the effect that they have on the people they lead. And if you look at a lot of the social psychological evidence, there's a lot of things that um, lead people in authority to be um, overly self-focused, selfish, and and in general, most of us human beings aren't as self-aware as we might be. And so, so this, this notion that the best bosses find ways to be in tune or self-aware enough to understand their impact on others. And one of the most interesting findings and something that really does seem to strike managers 
is this notion that one of the key things for um, bosses of all kinds, everything from CEOs to um, to sort of first line supervisor types, is this ability to figure out how hard to push people versus how hard to back off to be what some researchers call perfectly assertive. And to do that, you've really got to understand how you're coming across to, to people. So, I mean, you know, as, as, as somebody was, was joking, I actually ran into a guy at a conference. So he said he used to um, be like a Marine sergeant, you know, and, and he said the way that, um, that w what was appropriately assertive in that is a lot different than the company that he works in now, which is filled with a bunch of sort of, you know, ex-hippie Californians. So you've got to figure out how to be just the right amount of assertiveness to fit the situation. Absolutely. I, I think you. one of the things that stood out to me in the book, too, is, is you're absolutely right. There's being aware of that uh, influence. I, I believe there's a story, it's either in the book or on your blog, about uh, a female who was promoted to a boss position and came in wearing a suit with a, a certain scarf tied a certain way, and the right. very next day she noticed all of the women had their scarves tied the same way. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it is just amazing um, how that happens. The other thing, which uh, I also talk about, is actually this apparently is part of our, um, you know, our primate heritage that uh, it turns out that the uh, alpha male in a baboon troop gets looked at constantly um, by, uh, you know, the other members of the troop um, every 20 or 30 seconds. So, so that, and, and there's also a lot of evidence that, uh, that people in power don't realize how closely they're being watched. And, and so, so that idea of being in tune with people and overcoming the natural biases is, to me, what um, helps lead people to convince others they're in charge um, and to uh, have the wisdom to, to act and, and um, to convince people that you've got their, uh, their backs covered. And so, it, if you will, it's sort of like a thread that runs throughout the book, although, like, and I know you study uh, leadership, David, and, and as you know, the leadership literature is so vast that there's many ways to have a take on it, and this is sort of my, my take on what I think matters most. Now, you, um, you cite good bosses, bad bosses, and you cite uh, over 3,000 emails that you got that are largely from people who are struggling with uh, having a bad boss. Uh, what are some right. of the ways that you would suggest to cope if you have a boss hole? Well, if if well, to me, when I use the word boss hole, I tend to focus on somebody who's just a jerk. But if you have a, a bad boss, who of course includes being a, a boss hole, to me, there's sort of a series of steps. The first thing that I always say, and I and in this economy, I know it's tough, is that if you're really stuck with somebody bad and they're really do, having a bad effect on you if you possibly can, see if you can find a way to get out of the situation. So sometimes that means quitting your job. Sometimes in large bureaucracies, you can be tra transferred, even small bureaucracies, actually. But if you can't get away from them, some of the other things I suggest is at least try having a polite backstage conversation to explain how they're coming across, you're coming across. In fact, one of the very first, first interviews I did in the No Asshole Rule, this is like before the book came out, was with Ron Reagan, Ronald Reagan's son. I didn't know he had a radio show. Maybe he still does, does, maybe he doesn't. And he described how when he was a dancer, that's what he learned was that when people were treating with disrespect, it would be to pull them aside and to say, do you know that you're making me nervous and hurting my feelings and it's not constructive for either one of us? And And I think that Sometimes that does work, and then, and then, if neither one of those two things work, then I think you end you end up doing a whole bunch of less functional coping things. Well, well one of them that's functional is uh, trying to get rid of them, which does take more time and requires more power. If you're going to do that, document it well and get a bunch of people to help you. There's we've got 
some some research coming out on that. And then short of that, what I always say is to try to learn the the fine art of just not caring of emotional detachment and finding things you can control and avoiding um, contact with the nasty boss. But to me, it's I'd start out with the proactive steps. And if those don't work, then you're sort of left having to cope and do things like withdraw. I mean, I'm lucky in academia that um, in the past when I've had bosses who aren't so great, I can just sort of like avoid them because it's a big, flexible place. But if you work in a small office, it's not possible to do so. Now, uh, you actually said it very nicely. You tend to use the term boss holes for people that are flat-out jerks. Right. There are bad bosses who would actually want to be good bosses. Uh, what advice would you have for them in, in transitioning from a, a bad boss to a good boss? Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting question. And, I mean, it is funny because I, I, I've been, like, doing some work with um, some partly the Singapore government and then a bunch of really pretty impressive um, local and multinational firms, I mean, including um, IBM, uh, Procter & Gamble, um, General Electric, and and one of the things that you really see there, and this is back to the notion of self-awareness, is is the, the degree to which they give people, when they're man, well-managed, explicit feedback about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and what the definition of, of, a, of a good leader is in that system is really impressive. And one thing, although like all companies, they do it imperfectly, that, but that I was impressed with is if you, if you look at the chapter on, I call it the stars and rotten apples, the way that I define a um, star is, is somebody who both um, has fantastic individual performance and brings out fantastic performance in others. Not just so they're not a selfish um, superstar, basically. And, and at General Electric, they sort of draw a two by two. And if you're not in the box of high performance and high supporting others, basically, um, you're the person who's going to be the first person who's shown the door who's fired. And they've even, in the Jack Welch days, used to fire people publicly who violated that set of norms. And but but they don't, it isn't just punitive there and other places like Procter and Gamble that they'll give people when it's done well lots of feedback and it, it, a lot of it is some of the stuff that's covered in the book and many other management books which is teaching to be in charge teaching to be in, in control uh, protecting people's backs um, helping to find ways to turn knowledge into action um, but to me a lot of it starts with the with the, the self awareness part and also. Um, where we talk about the wisdom part, and this is something that a couple of the senior senior HR folks from P&G especially were really good about explaining is that if they're working with somebody who is aware of their weaknesses and is willing to work on them, then they're incredibly patient. But if they're not aware and they're not willing to work, to, um, work on them, then they tend to get um, rid of them or demote them or move them pretty quickly. And so I think it goes back to that self-awareness and the, and the wisdom um, which is the, the sort of ability to see your strengths and your weaknesses in real light. And I mean, it's actually last night I was watching a TV show and I thought that the comedian had said pretty good. And he said, look at this with your real eyes, not with your crazy eyes. And I thought that was pretty good because, you know, a lot of us, you know, and, and it's just the human condition. We, we sort of, you know, see things that don't exist, especially ourselves, as much better and more perfect um, than they actually are. So this idea of seeing things with your real eyes, I think, is, is part of the, self, the steps towards self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you even developed, uh, I believe it's on your website, but you talk about it in the book. You even developed a test to sort of help gauge that self-awareness, didn't you? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and and so so in fact, and we're gonna have a couple of these. This is one um, that the that that uh, the folks at Ripple, that's with an a Y R Y P P L E, came up with. And then in just a few weeks, we're gonna have something that's uh, 
called the brass. I think that I keep forgetting what something like uh, the, the boss reality assessment, something like um, tool or something like that. And what we're going to do is it's going to be for um, it'll be for people to assess their boss. And first they assess the quality of their boss and then they assess the degree to which uh, their boss is in or out of touch with reality. And, and in fact, that's a, another thing that's very important. And this is something that's confirmed by both leadership studies and general psychological studies is it turns out that if, if you're a boss, you should be wary of your own assessment, self-assessment about uh, how you're doing. It turns out that um, peer assessments and subordinate assessments are much, much more reliable and valid. So uh, don't believe what you believe about yourself. Check it out with others. And I think that's another part of the self-awareness issues. Well, absolutely. So if you're a bad boss out there and you want to learn how to be a good one or or if you have a bad boss and you want to, one, learn how to avoid them, and two, learn how to be a good one, pick up a copy of Good Boss, Bad Boss. Now, Bob, what are you reading right now? You, you write a lot, but what, what, are you, what writing are you doing? So, so I, I, I'm, I'm pretty ADD. So, um, so, the, two, the, so the, the two books I sort of have, have open and keep looking at, that's probably a way to look at it. One is this book, The Invisible Gorilla. I don't know if you've seen this. This is like a great book about all the way we have all sorts of biases. And then this other book, hold on, it's right here, which is really cool. This is by a um, Harvard Business School professor called Boris Groisberg. It's called Chasing Stars. And he sort of does an incredibly good job of exploding the superstar myth, the notion that people are portable from one place to another. And he does this with uh, investment um, analysts, and he does this with CEOs and sort of sort of shows that people who who perform fantastically well in one setting, when you move into another setting, um, very often they do considerably worse and, and, and have no negative effects on the organization that they left. So, uh, so I think that's a pretty cool sort of um, book and sort of an argument against, you know, at least in business, at sports it might be different, um, at least in business, the, the notion that there's a superstar who um, can perform well in any context. You know, it's interesting. I think I recall uh, Gladwell actually writing an essay in The New Yorker to, to that effect about talent, and I think he was using Enron as an example and their their war for talent and how, in the end, it kind of didn't work because they weren't giving even enough time to assess whether or not these people were good. So that sounds like an interesting read, much more in-depth on that same concept that maybe talent yeah. is, is overrated. I'm, I'm going to have to send him an email. We're going to have to get him into the leader lab. Yeah, he's a, Boris is a brilliant guy, just does wonderful work. Now, I, I know the book The book is out, and you're obviously promoting the book, but uh, either for you personally or, or if you already have in mind the, the next book, what, what's next for you? Oh, so the, the next – so I'm on sabbatical um, next year, this coming year, whatever. The great thing about academia is sabbatical, among, among other things. Um, and uh, so, as you say, I'm sort of um, – what I'm on the war path promoting the book, but I'm, the, the other thing I'm doing, which will especially start heating up in a couple of months after the initial – release of the book is one of my uh, Stanford colleagues. His name is Hagariva Rao or Huggy Rao. Him and I have been uh, studying and um, talking about the concept of scaling, of spreading, of taking good ideas and finding ways to you know, disperse them throughout uh, networks of people both inside of organizations and outside of organizations. And so uh, we're thinking about doing a, a book on, on, that, on that notion of how you do everything from spread an open source um, browser like Firefox to one of the other cases we did was something called the 100,000 Lives Campaign, which was um, 
which was a, a movement led by a, a, actually a small nonprofit located out of Boston called the Institute for Health Improvement. And it looks like uh, they got hospitals throughout the United States to adopt really simple strategies, things like uh, getting uh, nurses to wash their hands, uh, getting um, the beds that people were on tilted up um, 45 degrees when people were in respirators so they wouldn't get pneumonia. And it looks like uh, these simple practices saved 100,000 American lives in U.S. hospitals, preventable deaths, um, with just a 200-person organization at maximum. So, uh, so that's the kind of thing that, that we're interested in. And of course, the spreading of ideas is, is, is important on the web, but we're interested in, in all sorts of situations. So, so that's our, our, my next big pro, um, project. That's a, that's a fascinating project. So now if you're wanting to track what, what you're up to or learn some more information about, on, on the book on Good Boss, Bad Boss, or, or any of the other books you've written, uh, how can people get a hold of you and find out more information about Good Boss, Bad Boss? Oh, oh sure. So I'm, I'm a fairly, uh, well, like you, I'm a pretty compulsive blogger. Like I think I wrote Two, well, two blog posts today. Um, and the main place I blog is my blog is called um, Work Matters. It's at bobsutton.net. And then I also um, blog some at the Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. But the main place that I blog at, and I've been blogged at, blogging at for the last four years, and that I'll continue doing no matter what, is, is at bobsutton.net. And, and, uh, and I, I, write, I write about all sorts of things there. And, um, and, and there you can learn also more about all the books I've written, too. And you also uh, just entered the Twitterverse, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did just enter Twitter, and I and I have I have um, people giving me um, instructions and telling me I'm doing things wrong all the time. So it's kind of fun. Um, all my friends keep giving me advice. So it's uh, I'm just it, what work underscore matters is my Twitter. Um, what do you call that Twitter address? How do you say that? I can you know, think. I have I have no idea what it's called, and that's the beauty of Twitter. <laughs> I don't know that there is a way to do Twitter wrong. So anyway, well, I, I get people telling me I'm doing it wrong, but, I, but I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, so. I, and I, I don't know that there's a way to do it right, even. I think yeah. it's just what it is. It is what it is. Anyhow, so I'm having fun with that, too. Well, a lot of ways to get a hold of you, and we will we'll put all of those links in the show notes at our site at theleaderlab.org. Uh, Bob Sutton, thank you for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks, David. It was great to talk to you.